This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the podcast channel, New Books Network in Latin American Studies. I'm Elise Mazadiego, Mary Curie Fellow at the University of Amsterdam and your host. Today, we'll be talking to Laura Ogden, Ogden, excuse me, Professor of Anthropology at Dartmouth College about her book, Lost in Wonder at the World's End, published in 2021 by Duke University Press. Welcome, Laura. Thank you so much, Elise. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Um, So I would like to begin, as we often do in this podcast, by asking you to tell our listeners about yourself and your professional trajectory as a cultural anthropologist. Uh, Thank you. I'd love to. Um, I, yeah, as as you've said, I'm a cultural anthropologist. I, um, but I'm a, a cultural anthropologist that has always been interested in the ways in which people live in, make sense of and experience what we often call nature. Uh, Part of that comes from, I know, having grown up uh, in a national park in in the United States, in Florida, in the Everglades National Park, where both of my parents worked when I was growing up. Um, And what I learned from that experience was just the, the, the kind of political and social debates and exclusions that happen in places that many of us love and think of as wilderness. And so uh, early on in my career, my first long-term field work was uh, a project in Everglades National Park where I was interested in trying to understand kind of the hidden history of this enormous swamp landscape um, that was a story that wasn't told much in public places like in the visitor center of Everglades National Park. And that was the kind of uh, rural, white, poor settler communities uh, that lived in the park and then were were excluded from the park when the park was established. And so that's where I began my work, um, really with this question at first, that was kind of a classic environmental history question about you know, how, how is nature, what is the hidden history of nature? Um, and over time, that shifted to a more of a classic kind of political ecological question about how and what forces make us not remember the histories of nature. When I was, when I finished uh, my book Swamp Life, and it came out in about 2011, I became very interested um, in another question, and that was about the ethics and politics of managing 
um, what are often called invasive species or animals that we think of as being kind of out of place and unruly and not doing as we wish. Um, but I realized I was really too close to the Everglades to think about that there. I had um, in the Everglades at that time and still today, um, they're one of the biggest problems in the Everglades are these ginormous um, pythons that have been introduced into the landscape. Basically, they're pets that people have thrown out. And, um, but they, they were destroying uh, almost all the small mammals and 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 really impacting the bird wading bird eggs that were in the at, were there at the time and i just realized i was so heartbroken and kind of grief stricken by what was happening that i that i couldn't do that project there and so i was really really happy when um some colleagues in chile uh asked me and suggested that i come um to this Tierra del Fuego to the archipelago at the bottom of South America to look at another case study, basically, of invasive species, which was the introduction of beavers um, to the archipelago in the late 1940s. Um, and these introduced beavers have spread throughout the islands and now have become one of the most critical, quote unquote, invasive species projects. Pro problems in the world. And so that's that's how I ended up in, in Chile um, after working in the United States for such a long time. Well, I think um, that gives us a bit of a sense of how you arrived at sort of writing your book. But I do find that the book is so much more, in fact, um, than uh, the sort of the initial kind of entry point that you describe um, when talking about um, sort of the, the origination of the book. And uh, I, I would just like to congratulate you because I think your book is is really a beautiful assemblage of sort of anthropological research, personal narrative, history, and archival material that really points to um, the Fuegin archipelago, which, as, as you mentioned, is sort of the southernmost tip of South America. And I wonder if you can, in broad strokes, just kind of tell us about um, how once you uh, started or embarked on this project, um, how it sort of opened up all these other questions and um, discussions about this particular place. Because, um, you know, in the end, you you talk about this place um, as sort of embodying the world's end. And so I, I wonder if you could talk about this place in more expansive terms and, and sort of how it does, um, how we can understand it as the world's end. Yeah, absolutely, Elise. I mean, I think when I began my project there, which was very narrowly at the time, um, and this was about 2011, um, very narrowly at the time, focused on trying to understand the ethics and politics of invasive species, basically. Um, and um, Quite soon after, I think a couple of things happened that really uh, helped me rethink both the the scope of the project, um, but also the kind of questions that were important. Um, and one of those was that um, uh, when in the in these kind of nature spaces in the Fuegian Archipelago, na natural parks, etc., one of the things that's pretty astounding is the way by which um, 
indigenous people associated with the region are portrayed um, and used as part of a kind of story people tell about nature. And, and in particular in the Fuegian Archipelago, there is what I call this figure of the lost tribe um, that, that gets used in conservation context quite a lot. And that is these, these images from the turn of the last century, very famous images of Salknam and uh, Yagan people among others um, that, are, that are used in conservation as a, as a kind of signal about um, some primordial nature that's, that is extinct or that has the possibility of it being extinct. And part of that is because um, of the near genocide of indigenous peoples um, in the Fuegian archipelago that happened in the mid to late 1800s. Um, but I was really interested in how, like really in unthinking ways, conservation communities sort of evoke this image of the lost tribe. Um, and, and the second was when an archaeologist, a Chilean archaeologist, who I uh, became acquainted with there, uh, told me about a, a colonial era archive of Fuegian materials that was actually at my own college. Um, and it turns out this, this archive, which is called the Charles Wellington Furlong Archive, was an American explorer who was in the region in about 1907. Um, it's it's more it's probably one of the most significant archives of of, of that capture um, life as it's unfolding um, and changing um, in the archipelago at the height of of colonial settlement in the region. And so those two things really sort of pivoted my question, which was initially an environmental to one that was much more about the ways by which sort of colonial histories intersect with environmental change and then what gets forgotten in that process. Yeah. And I, I do find that um, the, the terms that really come through in the, in the title, but are then uh, interwoven in the book um, are are the terms loss and wonder, and obviously these are two central themes that run throughout the book. And um, you know, I find that you often uh, position them together uh, or in, in in a relational aspect. And so I find that on the one hand, you really localize them through your study of the archipelago, and on the other hand, you also um, universalize them in the way that you describe loss, for example, as, as a way of being in the world or a refrain of the present. And so I, I wanted to, to talk to you about these concepts and the particular ways that they operate in your book. Um, and, and perhaps, you know, going back and forth between sort of the more local and uh, sort of, uh, yeah, I guess, um, universal or kind of even planetary way in which, in which they, they operate in your book. Yeah, thanks, Elise. Um, uh, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I, I think if you're, if you move around in conservation communities, um, it's clear that these two sort of, I think I think of them as affective registers, loss and wonder really shape the politics of, of conservation today and they, and they probably always have. Um, but uh, 
and I'm in, in this in this way, I'm talking very specifically about this conservation trajectory that comes out of kind of Euro-American ideas of nature. Um, and so there's always this contingent, I believe, and um, and relational, as you said, um, politics around what gets lost, what's seen as being lost, um, and then a kind of wonder at what remains or what could be. Um, now, I think that that is a, 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 those two refrains of loss and wonder continue to shape environmental discussions today um, around, as you said, sort of these planetary concerns about global environmental change, that, these, that loss and wonder are embedded in those discussions. Um, but what I wanted to do in this book was to, to not universalize actually loss and wonder as much as to show how these are very much shifting and political refrains that, that emerge out of very specific historical, political, and environmental contexts. And so um, to show how loss and wonder emerge out of colonial archives, uh, show how loss and wonder emerge out of particular um, attempts to, to, to make sense of uh, colonial histories in the archipelago. Um, and so to politicize loss and wonder as, as emergent refrains or how we feel the world that are always very much specifically related to um, what I call political economic apparatuses like colonialism or like white supremacy, et cetera, that they, they're never apolitical. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, <clears throat> I guess I would like for you to then talk about, let's say, um, the archive. Um, maybe you can sort of at least introduce us a little bit to the material that you found in the Furlong papers. Um, but also, uh, and we can sort of get to this a, a little bit further, but um, trying to sort of think deeper about um, the function of the archive in the book, because I think um, what you do is you sort of look at um, the more traditional form of the archive uh, exemplified in the Furlong papers, but you also consider and really foreground other types of material traces that you also use in your book. Um, so we can sort of talk about that as well, but first maybe it would be good to, to talk about the specifics of, of the furlong, um, archive that you use. Yeah. The, the arc, the, the kind of traditional archival material that makes up a, a, a lot of this book, um, comes from the collected papers by this, uh, American white male explorer called Charles Wellington Furlong, who um, went to the archipelago um, in around 1906, seven. Um, and he was, uh, I think in some ways kind of a professional explorer, but also simultaneously he was an artist. Um, and he was hired by Harper's Magazine to, 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 to basically, um, Write a series of articles that they then published upon his return about life in the archipelago, but also its geography, its natural history. Um, but his main focus really was uh, 
I think he fancied himself kind of a, an amateur anthropologist, or that was his emergent uh, identity through this experience. Um, he was really interested in um, understanding indigenous life. And the reason he was, was because the that part of the world and indigenous peoples in that part of the world were famous because of the writings of Charles Darwin. And so my my sense is that this American explorer Furlong had grown up reading Darwin, um, Voyage of the Beagle, um, as well as other representations of Fuegian peoples, and so wanted to become a part of that, I think, genealogy. So he shows up um, and he's there for several months and then he actually returns at another time and um and the archive that we have now at dartmouth that he was invited to leave his materials includes his handwritten journals which are these incredible little tiny pocket notebooks that would that are like four inches um it, four inches that he kind of kept with him in extremely tiny tiny cramped handwriting i have no idea how he could do that um but there's eight or nine of those um, that he documents his interactions with people where he went um as well as about 800 photographs and other materials that he took in the archipelago mainly focused on indigenous life but but what i was more interested in was how they inadvertently um tell us a lot about this kind of key time um, of, of colonial settlement in the region. As you say, the the Furlong papers do form a, a central part of, of your understanding of, of that space, but obviously you also traveled there as well um, and spent a significant time as well. And I, I sense in reading the book is that... Um, your travels also then um, become part of of this kind of larger, more extensive archive, um, and that uh, through your experience and traveling there and studying there, um, that you come across all these other material traces um, that you also consider as part of of this much more broader understanding of the archive. So, can you talk a little bit about the those other those other forms um, and sort of materials traces that that you identify and bring into the into the book. Yeah, you know, as I was writing this book, Elise, one of the things that struck me or was and and continues is is the way that um, environmental communities, but I think increasingly others as well, understand the present as a time of environmental change. And loss, um, and and so a question, a kind of key question I had was, um, how do we know that? You know, how do people make sense of living in a time of loss? And that that was this maybe key theoretical question that I had, um, and and the. And for I think geoscientists um, and a lot of people interested in, in in understanding the present as the Anthropocene, the the kind of key space where the where that like sort of epistemology of the of the of history is held is is the Earth itself in the strata of the Earth. That's how we know we're in a time of loss. We can look at you know carbon, uh, soil carbon, etc. And so I was in in spending time in this um, archive, this literal archive at, at 
on campus, I, I, it made me think about like, where else can we find the, the, the kind of the ways we know the present archived? And, and cl clearly these traditional archives like the Furlong archives helps us understand the present or that's what we wish it would do. Um, and while I was in um, the archipelago doing my ethnographic research, the same question was, was relevant to me. Wh where are the traces that help us understand the present and evidence that, that we are living in a different time? And what I found was, you know, there's, there, I began to treat theoretically things like lichen or um, uh, shell mounds from uh, Yagan indigenous people on the island or, or the downed trees left from, um, left over from sort of extractive uh, forestry projects, all as um, evidence or uh, of what I call an archive of the present. And, and bringing these all together allowed me to both first think about like what counts as an archive, mm -hmm. but second, um, really uh, begin to theorize and think through um, temporalities of the present, you know? Uh, and, and so instead of the ways we, we tend to think about the story of history in these big universal stories of loss and change and environmental loss and changes is, is this one that is sort of this, um, slow evolutionary change that occurs in Earth, and then suddenly it's rapidly sped up around the time of industrialization. But it's a kind of linear view of, of time. And what was clear to me from working in the archives and thinking about the Fuegan Archipelago as an archive as well was that there are multiple kinds of temporalities that are at play in the present. And that, that was something I wanted to to write through in this book um, and try to figure out a way to do it so that, which is always a, a bigger project of mine um, as a writer is to think about ways to write so the reader not just thinks about the world, but can feel it as well. Um, and so this kind of meta, this kind of image of writing the book as an archive um, and putting things together so that they resist linear time um, was a way, it was a way I was hoping to do that, to kind of nudge a feeling of these temporalities as much as a way of thinking them. Yeah, I, I definitely want to touch a little bit more on um, how temporality also operates in your book, because in fact, you um, think about the sort of multiple temporalities that are existing almost in one particular moment. And um, again, there's a certain kind of um, material aspect to that. Um, and, and somehow through that material aspect, um, we sort of get back to um, the archive and the way in which perhaps the archive um, contains these these sort of multiple temporalities, um, and so uh, if you could, I guess, give us an example, maybe of one um, particular way in which you think about these multiple temporalities in in the book, let's say. Um, I mean, I'm sort of thinking about just chapter two, but perhaps you have another example that you really like to use. <laughs> Elise, I wish I knew which chapters were which chapters. That's the problem with this book. I <laughs> I move them around so often to try to see how they work. But um, well, 
maybe I'll start by saying um, I, I'm not a historian. And so when uh, my colleague first told me, you know, you should go check out this archive at Dartmouth College. It's really important. I was like, no way. I don't want to be stuck in a library. <laughs> <laughs> and I, um, uh, but I, I, I decided I needed to do that because um, the where the ethnographic part of the project took me was to um, spend several uh several weeks, maybe a month and a half on, on Navarino Island. And I knew I was going to Navarino Island where the, the main, the main village there is Puerto Williams um, to stay at a research station there. That's the Amora Biosphere Reserve with two of my colleagues uh, that I do field work with. And I knew that this archival material, a lot of it was um, covered Furlong's time in that region and with the Yagan indigenous community. Um, and because I was going to be there and the Yagan indigenous community has a, a village center there, um, I thought, well, I'm sort of, I might as well look through this materials. And, and so I did, and I copied as much as I could of the materials and took it to the community just to, to basically kind of ask, like, we have all this. What's our responsibility? What can we do, et cetera? Um, but but I'm not a, a his, I'm not a historian, and I don't really have a very I'm not trained in doing archival research. And so, at first, that scared me because it's such a big archive. But then I felt really liberated by that. I thought I'm an anthropologist. I'm going to treat this archive as an ethnographer would, which is instead of saying what can this material tell us about the past, and what's missing from the past, et cetera. I was, I began to ask, how does this material live in the world today? <laughs> and what does it do? And the, the thing about the, uh, many of the images in the Furlong archive is that they have been re reproduced, published, put on t-shirts, postcards, um, and, uh, hundreds and hundreds of times. You can't escape some of this imagery when you're in Patagonia or the archive. I mean, sorry, or in the archipelago itself. It, they're everywhere. Um, and so it was that moment when I thought, wow, here's this like this material that's all that Furlong wanted to sort of capture this vanishing tribe is what he thought. But instead, this, this very material is remaking the experience of living in the archipelago today if you're a Yagan person, but it's also very much shaping the ways in which tourists and settlers um, make sense of living in the present as well. Um, and so that, that is one of this moment, this kind of material moment, but also I think of it as an ethnographic one, where I began to think through how complicated time is, but particularly how complicated coloniality as a temporality is. Mm. Yeah, that's, um, that's really interesting. And I, I guess that also goes to... Um, I, I, in a way to sort of bring the archive back into the discussion, how um, uh, how an archive, but in particular, I guess, speaking um, in terms of Furlong's papers, um, really do, um, 
I guess, put into um, motion what you describe as sort of colonial inscription and indigenous erasure and how those two things are sort of happening um, simultaneously through the archive in a way and and how that has its own temporality and maybe that's that that's going to what you're talking about uh, uh, the sort of temporality of coloniality um but um i i think also something that you're speaking to is um the the images that um are one part of this archive um so for long's photography which in fact illustrates um much of the book in a way um, that I think is quite interesting, but you do um, look at these images very critically and, and particularly in chapter four, um, you uh, talk about these, these um, extensive, this extensive archive of images um, and their afterlives. And so um, I was wondering uh, if you could sort of, uh, talk about that history a little bit. I mean, you've sort of given us an indication of, of the implications of such images on the present, um, but maybe you can sort of elaborate on, on the history of those images and, um, yeah, sort of their circulation and publication, um, and obviously then what it does uh, in relationship to sort of, yeah, these kind of, these erasures and omissions. This episode is brought to you by sax.com. At Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. There, there are several sets of, of images of... Um, uh, indigenous people that that are really famous, and the furlong images are part of that canon, I would guess say, um, that uh, were taken all at the turn of the last century. The more famous ones are are made by another anthropologist called Martin Gusinde, um, but uh, but these are these are kind of a canon of striking images of mainly Selknam and Yagan people, which are two different language groups of people um, that were taken at the turn of the last century. Um, and they, they're they all coded, even at the time, um, with, I think, a kind of the trope of the vanishing tribe, which was, uh, for, for anthropologists at that time period, and probably for anthropologists today, that continues to be the ways by which um, anthropologists um, code, perhaps, see experience um, change as loss. And th this imagery really does that work. Now, when Furlong established his, his collection at Dartmouth, he didn't, and I think this is probably what happened at the time, I have no idea, he didn't put any uh, rules in place about how the material could be used or published. And so over time, over he established the archives in the in the, uh, the 1960s. Over time, people have come and and made copies of these images left and right, um, and and just published them all over the place, both for commercial reasons and academic books, etc. Um, and and it has created um, what I call 
it is part of what I call the Fuegan aesthetic that's very much about um, only seeing indigenous life as something that was in the past, that was about tradition, and that is now gone. Um, and, and so, you know, I was, I was really struck by that and how, how that trope, that figure of the lost tribe also gets taken up in conservation contexts um, as a way of sort of as a kind of warning almost about what could happen to other things that are deemed sort of primordial and natural. Um, and it, it, working through the life of that imagery became a, what I was interested in thinking about and trying to make sense of in the book, um, but also working through simultaneously the way how to, as a, as a writer who finds these images so dangerous, um, how to show that, how to show what they do, but also not to continue it, you know? It's like if I wanted to write a book about pornography and, and, and try to like, how do I show that kind of imagery without just like reinscribing the kind of exploitation that happened. And so that became this really key challenge for me was how to both show that these images are, are really beautiful. I mean, it's like looking, for me, it was like looking at, you know, like you're driving by a car accident, you just can't help looking at it. <laughs> um, and, but to do it in a way that, that forced the viewer to, to think beyond, um, these extremely hard um, and, and sort of stubborn tropes of loss that we see with this kind of 19th century imagery. Yeah. Um, how, I guess, how would you um, compare then these sort of images to the way that you were seeing and experiencing the archipelago um, on your on your uh, research visits um, and and travels, I mean, uh, these images um, cannot be um, separated from how I think anybody who doesn't live there and who does live there experiences the archipelago. Literally, the name of the ferry that takes people from the mainland of Chile through the Straits of Magellan and winds its way down to the to the island of Navarino to Puerto Williams, the town. This ferry that comes a couple times a, uh, a week is called the Yagan. When you're in the little dining room of the ferry, um, uh, a little dining area, there are these, there are actually furlongs photographs are on the wall. Um, and so it, it, it's impossible actually not to have those be a part of the way by which I or anyone who lives there, visits there, hikers, trekkers, whatever, um, experiences the archipelago. Simultaneously, um, it's it's a landscape of like any place where people live and watch um, MTV Music Awards and um, and want to send their kids to good schools and are interested both in traditions in the Yagan community's case and recu recuperating the language, the traditional Yagan language, but where, you know, kids are learning karate. So they're, they're, I, I think that the, one of my goals in the book was to, 
to enliven these other aspects of living in the place in ways through writing, um, in ways that 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 show how um, show how this this kind of lost tribe imagery like put it in another category or show this kind of tension and dis- disjunction in a way, um, and to point that out. I. Um... Yeah, I think that what comes out of uh, one aspect that comes out of um, your your answer is how perhaps photography uh, is is part of this almost repertoire of inscription, and you use the term inscription uh, throughout the book and point to I guess the various forms of inscription. Um, and uh, we, you, we can kind of see just in the way that you were describing um, the various ways in which these photographs sort of name and I, I identify and and really kind of stake claim on on a particular narrative of the archipelago. And so maybe you can also uh, describe for the listener the other forms of inscription that play out in the book. Um, and, and what are the implications of, uh, of those, those other forms as well? Yeah, I, this, I use throughout the book, one of maybe one of the kind of key concepts that I use, um, is, is, is a term that I called inscription practices. And that's actually a term that I first heard from the anthropologist, Tanya Lee. Um, and, but I use it specifically to talk about the ways beings in the world um, state claims to territory or practices by which beings in the world state try to claim territory itself. And so it's a, it's a term that works um, really well, or at least I think so, um, in the context of settler colonialism, which is what happens in the Fuegian archipelago. It's, it's a very different mode of colonialism than you see in other parts of South America. But um, so how, and, and one of the things that I've always been interested in my work is to to take an, a concept that may be associated with with people and humans and human history, um, as we think of like how does how do colonial practices inscribe and claim territory. Um, one of the ways they do that in the archipelago is by renaming everything, um, which is an obvious way, but after sort of. European explorers and scientists like Charles Darwin. So those are really obvious inscription practices, the way of claiming and reshaping the ways by which territory is known, used, its possibilities, its future, and its past for that matter. Um, But one of the experiments I've been interested in is like, what happens if you take these kind of concepts and apply them to non-human life? And so I began to think of the ways by which lichen which are these assemblages of life um, that are li- that live on the beaches of the Fuegian archipelago? How do they inscribe territory, and in what ways do they do that? Um, and Lai can do it by by really um, on the beaches, at least all over the uh, all over the polar regions, by having these kind of colored bands that are visible from the sky, bright orange, bright black, and white um, bands that that where they coat the rocks along the shoreline um, and it's a way of sort of showing territory that's related to, or I I think so, related to um, the tide lines. And so I I 
began to think through like how do other forms of life inscribe territory? And that allowed me to think about the politics of, of different kinds of practices of territoriality. Um, and then what those things tell us about, about time and how time is lived in these different, um, in these different kind of modes, basically. So I think that kind of gets us to um, uh, a discussion about um, the beavers that were integrated <laughs> or introduced <laughs> into the archipelago. Um, and I really was, <coughs> excuse me, interested in um, the term that you use to uh, describe this particular history of beavers being introduced into the archipelago um, as a, 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 in terms of animal diaspora. And um, you, you not only apply that term to beavers, but to um, sheep as well. And so maybe you can just give us a sense of um, the animal diasporas that figure into the book um, and particularly uh, the the beaver population that, um, you know, in one way could also be thought of in terms of this kind of inscription, territorial inscription in a way. One of the things that, uh, that and, I, and as I said in the beginning of this, our discussion that led me to the archipelago in the first place was an interest in thinking about invasive species as a kind of category of being in the world in a new way. Um, and that was because I felt that um, First of all, there were debates going on in the in the mid two thousands um, uh, anyway, or the mid 2010, 11, that, that area, not mid two thousands, but the first decade of the two thousands. Um, within conservation biology and ecology, there were these really interesting for me as a an anthropologist who's interested in science debates about does this category of native species and invasive species, do these categories even help us make sense of a world that is always changing? Um, and so these, and these were really, uh, um, I would say heartfelt and uh, political debates that are happening in science. So I was interested in that, that that this was happening. Like, what happens if we throw out this category of the native species? <laughs> what, what, what happens? <laughs> um, and But what I realized was, for me at least, um, that this idea of the native species, because I am also an environmentalist, and the invasive species are so intractable in some ways, that, it's, it, that I needed to come up with another concept to help me do the work of thinking outside of these really intractable paradigms. I call it the invasive species paradigm. They're very, very firmly lodged <laughs> into the hearts and minds of people who think about nature. Um, and I have been reading for a long time um, the work of the philosopher Isabel Thangers. And she's a she's a philosopher who writes about science and 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 politics and nature, I would say. And one of the things that she talks about is uh, is this is she has this term called um, the speculative, um, and and for her the speculative is a is a is is a kind of thought experiment to try to figure out a way to think what she calls ontological difference um, outside the ways we we normally do 
like the invasive species. And so while I was in the Fuegian archipelago, I thought, what can I, how can I think about this in ways that actually shows the history and the politics of life as it moves around the globe in ways that the invasive species paradigm doesn't, which thinking about invasive species is always sort of ahistorical, apolitical. Um, and the term diaspora uh, was one that I tried on for this project. Like what happens if we begin to think about non-human life in the context of global mobility that is always stridently about history and about politics and about um, race, racialized difference. Um, and what do I get from that? Um, how does it help or not? Um, and so that that is what I began to think. Like it helped me, the term diaspora, as hard as it is to think about diaspora for I think obvious reasons by the ways by which um, Black and other communities who are, who where that we use the term diaspora with um, are also often labeled with terms that are that are that have sort of these animality with them as well. So there's this tension. But at the same time, I thought, what happens when we do this? Um, and for me, it it helped me see the the kind of colonial histories and the histories of empire that shape animal life um, and it, in ways that the invasive species couldn't. It also helped me, I think, because diaspora scholars have really done this, diaspora scholars really push back against kind of essentialized biological categories of difference. And also this essentialized idea of the home and homeland. Um, and so using those tools that comes from diaspora scholars helped me think about these beavers in the archipelago, not as Canadian beavers that have been brought in, but but part of a, a longer history of empire that's always about and has been in, in the North America and South America often about includes animal life. Uh, and so that it was helpful in that way. Yeah. And maybe you can then talk a, a little bit about the specifics of, say, um, the introduction of beavers to the archipelago, but also I think in in the case of um, talking about um, sort of agricultural production and, and sheep also, and how, in fact, um, how the introduction of, of say, certain uh, animals to this region has kind of dramatically shaped um, this this place now and um uh how in fact uh questions of uh economy and also ecology have have been um yeah have ultimately been shaped by by these animal diasporas sure um Beavers, uh, beavers were introduced into the archipelago um, at the end of World War II um, um, into Argenti the Argentine side of the arch archipelago. Basically, the Perón administration at the time was really interested in um, developing the southernmost part of Argentina. They felt that he, the administrator wanted kind of a unified and modern um, Argentina, 
the, the, the southernmost parts of Patagonia, both on Argentina and Chile, had, had always been sort of very disconnected from Buenos Aires or from Santiago. Um, and, 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 and they were, they were, their histories of, of settlement um, were very different. And so ironically, the development dreams, <laughs> excuse me, the development dreams of the, of the, of the Peron administration was to, to start a, a fur trade down, down in, down in the, uh, down there. And so they hired uh, a pilot, basically a bush pilot in Canada in Manitoba region to capture 20 pair of beavers, uh, transport them. I mean, it's the most unlikely um, development scheme today, but to trans them, transport them from Canada um, at first by rail to New York, and then they flew on a plane from New York City to uh, Miami International Airport, which was probably not International Airport at the time, but um, where they were kept overnight. And this this is the lore. I don't know if this is actually true or not, but I, I believe it. They were kept in this sort of re uh, cooled, refrigerated room that had a wooden door, and the beavers gnawed through the door overnight. Um, and then they were put on a, a clipper ship and taken from Miami all the way to... Um, to the Fuegian Archipelago, to Ushuaia, and um, and they they were released in hopes that this would create this fur trade because beaver fur has always been very very valuable. Well, of course, it didn't work. They, these schemes don't ever work. Um, but um, but very soon after, um, the beavers, as as animals do, um, crossed into Chile. Um, and they, by the early 1960s, they've crossed into Chile. They are, I mean, these are pretty incredible animals. They've, they've actually swam across the Strait of Magellan, um, this, this, this like famous waterway that, that you know, <laughs> that is just like almost a metaphor for, um, for remote and dangerous. These beavers swam across the Straits of Magellan and, and have arrived on the Chilean mainland as well. And today there are on the, the largest island of the archipelago, which is called Isla Grande, but it's also just often referred to as Tierra del Fuego. Um, the largest island now, um, forest scientists think that, uh, that beavers have inhabited about 90 to 98% of all the waterways in the, in the archipelago. And they've created, and this is a quote, kind of um, landscape, um, level change that that has that it, that that the only analogy is the last ice age. It's they've uh, what happens is what beavers do is um, create dams and waterways um, that then produce these large ponds that fl flood out the the rest of the landscape that the surrounding landscape. And because this is an environment not 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 used to being flooded out. Um, the trees there, these linga trees, um, are all dying, um, and and these forests are really treasured by by many, but um, certainly by the environmental community because they are the southernmost forests in the world. Um, and this region is, has been considered sort of one of the last great wilderness areas in the world because it's very remote and very sparsely populated. Um, and these beavers are are really transforming that 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 landscape. Dramatically, um, and I and I think while there, um, it's very hard not, including myself, not to 
feel that loss and not to try to think about like what is happening to these forests um, and what's the ethics of thinking this through. It's certainly beavers had no choice in the matter, but 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 I think this issue of choice may be beside the point. Um, uh, and then in in the Fuegian archipelago, um, like much of Patagonia, we tend to think of the Fuegian archipelago, and certainly conservation people do, as this epic wilderness, and it has these, you know, the Darwinian range, the southernmost extent of um, of the mountain ranges in South America. It's got glaciers, it's got penguins, it's got all of these things that we think of as wilderness. But in fact, it, a lot of it is also a working grasslands landscape um, that was and has been since the late 1800s, these giant sheep farms, estancias. Um, and so at any moment in time, practically, on the biggest island of Tierra, the biggest island in Archipelago, Tierra del Fuego, there's two to three million sheep roaming around simultaneously. And so thinking about these different kinds of sort of economic development projects, um, one, are, one is a settler colonial project of, of, of these estancias, um, and the other one is this fur trade, and, and thinking about the, these different, the ways by which animal life is enrolled in these projects, but then are, are simultaneously thought of in very different terms. And so beavers are invasive species, while the sheep, which are doing enormous damage to the landscape as well, um, are, are never talked about in that way. Um, and and it, it it just was a kind of an experimental moment to think about the ways by which many of us value animal life and which and which and how and, and in what ways. Yeah, I think um, the this discussion. I, I would like to sort of um, I guess bring in one other aspect uh, into this discussion, which is um, how, in fact, you uh, had the um the experience of working with Christy Gass and Camila Marambio if if I'm pronouncing their names correctly and um who you identify as feminist artists and filmmakers and the kind of influence they had on your work um and on this particular aspect of your work as you were sort of uh, thinking about the sort of beaver population in the archipelago. And I, I just wanted to uh, ask you if you could discuss how, in fact, um, their influence and how performance in particular really emerged in your work through this through this collaboration with Gast and Marambiu, and um, perhaps how it open, also opened up another aspect of your practice um, as, as an anthropologist. Absolutely. Um, uh, Camila Marambio and Christy Gast are, are both uh, I, I, feminist artists, uh, performance artists. Um, Christy is also a sculptor um, and filmmaker, uh, and Camila is a, um, a curator, has a PhD in curator, curatorial practice. Um, and But I, I've known both of them for a very long time, well before I started working in, in the Fuegian Archipelago. The strange thing was, and um, the strange thing was that um, I was invited by some Chilean scientists, conservation scientists and ecologists that I knew to, to work in the archipelago. At the very same time, uh, Camila 
began a relationship with one park um, in the uh, in Tierra del Fuego called Karen Kinko uh, Nature Park, which is a wildlife conservation society park, um, to start an interdisciplinary art to science and social science residency to look at the question of the beavers. And so this was this moment where um, it was where our friendships and sort of interests strangely aligned. And so I participated in that residency with them. Um, and then we, the three of us, began also doing just more field work together, both ethnographic field work that I do, um, and I participated in some of their performance projects, um, video projects, and other kinds of projects, field-based art practices. Um, but we we sort we sort of decided we were going to work on this project together, in, both formally and informally. We started a reading group together. We um, and then we went back and forth and did field work together for several years. Um, in some ways, I began to be totally honest. Like I be, I I love them both, and I began this collaboration with them because I so much valued spending time with them in the field, it just as an experience of driving around together and talking together and thinking about things together and reading together um, and just being together in the field was um, just a great experience, and particularly with somebody who has, who has done uh, quite a bit of field work alone, um, as I have also in the archipelago, you know, it's, it's very isolating. Um, so it was a great experience. But I thought in the very first years of our work together that like my ethnographic work was the work I was doing and I would help them with some of their work and vice versa. But I always thought of this as very different. And in particular, I often felt that these site-based uh, performance projects that they were doing had no relevancy to my own work. Like, in fact, I would get sort of frustrated sometimes, like like we would spend days and days and days um, on a site-based performance um, in Tierra del Fuego, or we also did some, I also went to Paris as part of this, this project with them. But I always looked at these as kind of dichotomies and, and sometimes a little bit annoyed because I felt like I needed to get to my own work, you know, quote unquote. And, and part of that was because you know, certainly um, as an academic anthropologist, my quote unquote work is always about writing and publication. And so it took me a long time to figure out like, how does this, how did this, how does this shape that practice that I love? Um, and what I realized through participating with them in these very much community-based performances um, that forced people literally to think about beavers in new ways um, was that I realized that this practice that I'd had for a long time, which I call thought experiments, um, and in this book I call speculative wonder, which is this idea of like taking a concept and try to shove it onto something else and see what happens. Um, that that's in fact what these performances were doing, that Christine and Camilla were doing. And it totally um, shook me to my core intellectually, where I realized like not only was I not wasting time, but that my participation as an ethnographer and just seeing what happens in these performances became the main, I would say, way by which I 
I began to theorize so much of my book, this book as a series of thought experiments that evoke feeling um, as much as thinking. And I really am grateful uh, because it changed how I think of my job as a scholar um, and how I think of myself as a thinker was through this, um, this kind of collaboration with them on things that are so outside my comfort zone. Um, and, and it really, yeah, and that's all I, it changed my whole approach to being an anthropologist. That's wonderful. <laughs> um, well, I, I, I would say, Laura, that we've taken up a lot of your time. So I uh, will just ask you one final question, which is, what are you working on now? Well, it's been a, a, a total pleasure and so much fun to talk to you. So thank you. Um, currently, I am taking some of the themes from my book, Loss and Wonder, which is about time and extinction and the possibility of a different future. But I'm, a, I'm using those ideas to try to make sense of um, uh, the, 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 the near extinction of the California condor. Um, and I've been interviewing scientists who worked on that project to to try to really understand what happens to science when it's so close to extinction. Um, the California condor was nearly extinct in the 1980s and now it is rebounded. Um, but I, I'm very much interested in that, that moment when scientists are literally holding these enormous birds that I first fell in love with in the Andes um, in California when there's only a few of them left in the world. And so that's that's the book I'm writing right now. Okay. Well, I look forward to reading um, the uh, the book that will potentially come out of that research. Uh, thanks so much, Laura, for joining us. Thank you.